Before we turn to our text this morning, I was just uh, thinking about the the message today, and uh, you know, many times when a preacher's conducting a funeral service, you you don't really have any assurance whether the person's uh, in heaven or not. And it's always such a wonderful thing whenever they leave a testimony to where in your mind there's no doubt about it. They knew the Lord, they're with the Lord. And it's so sad that, uh, that a lot of folks uh, don't have that testimony. There's more confusion about salvation than, than I guess anything else in all of the world. Uh, plenty of religion but not so much about salvation. If you knew someone, or maybe, maybe, maybe it might be you, I don't know, but someone that's from from a famous family, they're respected, uh, they're highly educated, uh, they're greatly esteemed by all of their peers, everybody likes them, Uh, they're known as somebody that really loves God and they strive to keep all of God's commandments. They've got lots of zeal. They just want to please the Lord. And chances are you might think of them as being a really, really good person. And uh, it might be that you think, boy, if anybody's going to heaven, they're going to make it. They've got it made. Never met a better person in all of my life. Uh, but what if I told you that, uh, that that wasn't necessarily the case? Suppose, suppose that you are a person like that. And you resent the fact that I even suggest that there's the possibility that, uh, that you're headed for hell instead of heaven. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying is true of a lot of people. And today we're going to talk about a man that uh, uh, was like that. If I said this morning, I'm going to, I'm going to preach about Saul as a great number of people start turning to the Old Testament and thinking about King Saul. But uh, that's not the man we're going to talk about this morning. You can be turning in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9, and we'll get there after a while and look at a few of the verses. And I want you to think today about the salvation of Saul. Not King Saul, but the Saul who became the great Apostle Paul. Uh, how much do you really know about, about Saul? You know, we think we know a lot about the Apostle Paul and all of the great things that he did, but I, uh, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon just about uh, Saul and who he was. I've heard references to him and so forth, but... Uh, who was this man called Saul? I think the best way to answer that is to let him speak for himself. And over in the book of Philippians, in chapter number 3, 
You can either turn there or I'm just going to read a few excerpts from these verses. And I want you to notice how he describes himself. And I'm talking about the, uh, the so-called assets that he had. All of the good things he had going for him. And he says in verse 5, he was circumcised the eighth day. Now, that's in keeping with the law. The Old Testament law prescribed in the book of Leviticus. So, uh, ritual, check mark. You got that down. Relationship. Verse 5, he says, I'm of the stock of Israel. In other words, he's not a convert to Judaism like uh, some, uh, some were. Uh, he could trace all his roots all the way back to Abraham. And then notice in verse 5, he speaks about being of the tribe of Benjamin. That's respectability. This was the most respected tribe of all. Jacob's last son and he was more respected than all of the others uh, in that day. And he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And then in verse 5, he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's what some would call his race. Both his father and his mother were Jews. And he's educated in the Jewish schools and spoke Hebrew. And by the way, was educated under Gamaliel the most famous of all of the teachers of that day. So uh, he had that down pat. Notice his religion in verse 5. He says, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Now, you and I hear that word Pharisee, and naturally it comes to our mind. There's a bunch of stinking hypocrites, you know. But in that day, they were regarded as the most strict conservative of all of the Jews. They, they, they were the champions of, of Jewish tradition, highly respected among the Jews. In other words, the top rung of the social ladder. Reputation, verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. I mean, no one was more fanatical and radical than he was in this regards. He really believed that he was doing God and people a favor by getting rid of these people. So his reputation is intact. Verse 6, his righteousness. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. By that he means nobody can bring an indictable charge against me. i I, I, I keep, keep the law. So here he is, a highly regarded Hebrew. And in addition to all of that, he has Roman citizenship. He was born in Tarsus, and then the cap, that's the capital of a province of the Roman Empire. It was called a free city, uh, declared so by Mark Anthony. It was recognized by Caesar, and that was a great advantage to anyone in that day. So he must have thought at that time of his life that life is good. He must have felt really satisfied with himself. He was admired by the Jews. He's protected by the Roman government. And he feels like everything is all good between him and God. And here he is on a mission Remember, from God in his mind, that's what he's thinking. I'm on a mission from God to rid the world of these Christians. And yet, as we know, he was as lost as anybody could possibly be. But these are the most difficult people of all people on earth. These are the most difficult people to reach for Christ 
because they don't see any need. And Paul was basically saying there in Philippians, if I, if I wanted to boast, if I wanted to brag about myself, just look at my record. I mean, I've got it all, and he seems like the least candidate possible to ever become a Christian. We would say today, man, he's a hopeless case. Going around and committing these horrible crimes in God's name. And in spite of all of that, God was at work. And you can bet Saul never imagined what was about to happen. Except for the Lord Jesus Christ, he would have died in his sins. He would have spent eternity in hell. But something happened. Acts chapter 9, the first two verses speaks about the crimes that he committed. It says, Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if any be found of this way, that is the way of the Christians, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Here's a guy that means business. He's not fooling around. He's not just making threats against people. And if you read what he wrote in chapter 22 and again in chapter 26, you'll see that these were horrific crimes that he committed. And in all of this, what we see is a manifestation of his sinful nature. And you might be thinking this morning, well, huh, I'm sure a lot better person than, than he was. Now, it might be you're, you're right. It might be that you've been born again, but... Listen, God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not comparing you and somebody else. The truth is, by nature, you are just as guilty as Saul was of sinning against God. You say, well, I've never taken a drink in my life. I don't cheat. I don't gamble. I don't run around on my spouse. I don't do any of these things. I certainly wouldn't ever murder a, a Christian or anyone else. And yet, if you've never been born again, you'll go to the same devil's hell that he did. Because without Christ, we're all condemned in the sight of God. So it doesn't do any good to brag about being better than Saul or better than anyone else. Because even though you might not be as bad as him in some ways, you're just as bad off. You're just as bad off. And so many times we get it in our mind that others might do this or that, but I'd never do that. And we forget about the fact that we have indeed offended a holy God. We think about the sins of commission, those sins that we would never do. And then we fail to consider the sins of omission, the things we should have done that we don't do. We put them in a different category as though they're not as important. We look at the overt acts of sin, the things that people can see, but, but we seldom think about what goes on in the heart, the very thoughts of our heart that God sees, those sinful thoughts. Now look at verse 3 and 4. 
All of a sudden, a man like that, a man that is on our list of helpless people, hopeless people, he says in verse number 3, and as he journeyed, I mean, he is on the way. He's not delaying. He's, he has got the okay, and he's headed out to do it. No second thoughts. He came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You talk about a wow moment. I mean, this is it. God knows how to get our attention. Mark it down. You can go through life holding God at arm's length. You can ignore his word. You can mock the very thought of his resurrection and virgin birth and things like that. But mark it down some way, someday. God's going to get your attention. And here he is on his way to do his evil deeds and suddenly Christ bursts in upon the scene. And it's a good thing because Saul wasn't searching for Christ. But Christ was searching for him. He was seeking him. Aren't you glad that the Lord is still seeking out those that are lost today? You might attend a church Service, you might be in a Bible study and have the Word of God presented to you and yet show absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. Oh, it might be of historical value to it, or the preacher might even tell a joke now and then, or a sob story, something that moves you emotionally, but it's not like, oh, I hope I find God here today. I hope I receive the assurance of salvation today. So many people, let's just like that and Saul is not thinking you know I I hope I get all of this matter settled while I'm on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden I mean this is shocking it's surprising it's serious and the Lord said Saul Saul why persecutest thou me All of a sudden, and believe me, Saul knew exactly what he was talking about by persecution. The only people he's been persecuting are those that are Christians. No worry about getting rid of all of the other thieves and liars and murderers. He's not looking for them. He's not a vigilante out there trying to rid society of those awful kind of people like that. He's looking for Christians. And that tells me that the manner in which we treat one another matters to Christ. And an offense against them is an offense to Christ. And, you know, that will remind us that absolutely nobody will ever be saved until they understand they are a sinner. Paul made a statement in another place. He says, I've lived in a good conscience until this day. That was his way of thinking that all of the things that he was doing that was wrong, he thought all of those things were right, that he didn't sit around and worry about putting men and women, by the way, in prison, some of them being killed. He didn't worry about that at all. He's doing God a favor. At least he thinks so. 
And now all of a sudden he is confronted by the Lord himself at a moment unexpected. And he hears the Lord speak his name. And he says, why persecutest thou me? Now notice the confusion here in verse 5. And he said, who art thou, Lord? He, he is confused. I mean, he hears a voice. I, I don't know about you, but if I started hearing voices, I, whether they came from above or behind or wherever, uh, you know, I, it'd get my attention. I'd be kind of confused about that. I normally don't hear voices unless somebody's speaking to me. Nowadays, I don't hear half of that. But he said, this is Saul speaking, who art thou, Lord? Well, anybody would be shocked, you know. And To me, it would have been really stupid on Saul's part if he would have said, you know, must have been something I ate. Must be somebody pulling a trick on me. This can't be real. I don't have time to mess with this and just... Just ignore it. But he inquired about it. That was the smart thing to do. You know, sometimes there are things in life that ought to make us stop and to think that just maybe God's trying to get my attention. For example, we know that the Bible exists. There's no denying that, right? It's been the bestseller of all of the books all of these years and so many people put so much emphasis on how important it is. So here's, you know the Bible exists. If there is the slightest possibility that the Bible can be what it claims to be, don't you think you ought to investigate? You might be one of those saying, no, I'm not, yeah, a book of fairy tales. What are you talking about? Uh, all of those fairy tales about all of those miracles. It's all make-believe. Really? Have you ever investigated? Have you, have you ever looked into it? And I mean, you can look at archaeology. You can look at the history. You can, oh, yeah, by the way, the prophecies. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of things that validate that the Bible is not a book that man would have written if he could, and he could not if he would. That's what the Bible is, and yet some people have not the slightest interest in it whatsoever. Could there possibly be really a place called heaven and a place called hell? Could, is that possible? You say, well, I'm not sure. Well, don't you think you ought to find out? I mean, that's worth investigating. And even Saul, this educated but yet stupid religious person, had the good sense to investigate, who art thou, Lord? Jesus answered, his question, and he can answer your questions. If you are sincere about it and you honestly want to know, 
Is he really a resurrected Savior like those Christians talk about? Can he really save me? Can, can he really take me to heaven? And if you're sincere about that, I guarantee you some way, somehow, he'll get the message to you. Might use grandma to do it. Might use your Sunday school teacher to do it. But some way you'll get the message. Jesus answered his question. And he can answer yours. The only question is, do you trust him? What if he spoke in an audible voice and said, Okay, Pastor Stone, shut up. I'm going to take over in the rest of the service. I want to talk to these people. What if he spoke in an audible voice? Would it really make any difference? Would you believe him? Would you trust him? And notice the last part of verse number five. He said, it is hard for thee. This is God speaking now. Jesus. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now he's talking about in the olden days where they had the ox carts and the oxen, and they had a sharp goad that they would use to spur them along, to direct them. What in the world did the Lord mean by that? Well, if you look back to chapter number 7, it becomes obvious that evidently God was speaking to him at the death of Stephen. That would have been a sight to behold, would it not? And yet it tells us that Saul was there witnessing, not just witnessing that event, he put his stamp of approval on it and said, this guy deserves to die. You ought to read Stephen's sermon, by the way, just before that, and you'll see why he was angry. He's talking about a resurrected Savior. Time to die. Pick up this rock, start stoning him. And they did. They stoned him to death. I don't think Saul ever forgot what he saw that day. I remember the first time many years ago that I heard that song. There's a song about that story that says, I see Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand. That's what Stephen said. I I see Jesus, he's sitting at the Father's right hand. And here we are later on, Saul still doing the same things he's been doing. And all of that time, all of that time, I, I believe with all of my heart that that was troubling him. The, not just the words that he spoke, that Stephen spoke, but the the witness that he left. He wasn't cursing. He wasn't complaining. He was dying like a Christian. Somebody might read that and think, what a terrible waste. That wonderful man, Stephen. Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit, by the way. What a good man. Great Christian. Why would a loving God let... Something so horrible happened to a man like that. You've thought about that, no doubt, before. It might be personal with you. You thought to yourself, I love the Lord, I serve the Lord, and look at what God's doing to me. Not fair. 
We say we believe Romans 8.28 and we believe it for everybody else, but something happens whenever we try to apply it to ourselves. So maybe someone's thinking Stephen's death was in vain, but you'd be wrong. Because God even uses his death in a way. Look at verse 6. This shows the conviction of Saul. It says, and he trembling and astonished. In other words, now the Lord is bringing him face to face with his sinfulness. And let me tell you, anyone that's ever been saved knows exactly what that's like. If you've never come face to face with being a sinner in the sight of God, you've never been saved. There's no salvation without that convicting power of the Holy Spirit at work in a person's heart, convincing them that they are a sinner in need of salvation. And now all of a sudden... Saul's demeanor, everything is changing. Now, he's trembling. He's astonished. Now look at verse 6. And in this statement here in verse 6, I believe is the point of his conversion. I know some would argue about that. Church of Christ didn't throw a fit about it. I know some Baptist preachers that don't even believe it. But notice what happens now. He says, Lord... What will thou have me to do? Now, keep in mind that in verse 5, the fact that Jesus revealed his identity to Saul in verse 5, because he doesn't know who this is right now. He certainly doesn't think it's the Lord. He's supposed to be dead. So in verse 5, he reveals his identity. And here Saul uses that word Lord again. The first time, and this was appropriate, it was something that was done, out of a matter of respect, they used the word, he used the word Lord as though we would say, sir. That's in verse 5 there. But now he uses the word Lord much more, in a much more, meaningful way this is the point of surrender the point of belief he knows who he is the Lord just told him I'm Jesus and he says Lord what will thou have me to do now the fighter becomes a follower the one who is a lion suddenly becomes a lamb What would you have me to do, Lord? I'll guarantee you whenever Saul set out on that mission, the last person he expected to see was Jesus. And just as Stephen saw Jesus, he sees Jesus. Imagine the shock of that, that suddenly realizing that Jesus really was resurrected, that he's alive. And keep in mind, being a student of the Old Testament, you better believe he was. He knew about all of those prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. He knew about that. And now all of a sudden, in just a, in just a moment, 
he must be thinking to himself, wait a minute, all of those prophecies were true. The Messiah has come. Jesus was the Messiah. All of this going on in his mind in a split second, and as soon as he recognizes that and puts his faith in him, he says, Lord, you're now the master. Lord, now what would you have me to do? I want to say something that's really important in light of that. I want you to consider the simplicity of salvation. Whenever you look at this, Lord, what would thou have me to do? I've never heard anybody talk about the simplicity of this matter. I mean, to listen to some preachers, you get the impression that you have to be a a theologian in order to be saved. At least you've had to go to Bible school. I mean, that's the impression that you kind of get. I tell you, when I got saved, I didn't know those words like justification, sanctification, glorification, and I didn't know what all that stuff meant. But I knew I was a sinner and I believed Jesus was who he claimed to be and I believed that he would trust me. Now I mention this because it makes you wonder what chance does the old farmer man, uneducated, never went to high school, maybe someone kind of like my daddy from a poor family, his daddy died when he was in eighth grade. Daddy had to drop out of school. Grandma couldn't support all of the kids. So, so daddy got farmed out, so to speak. He had to go live uh, with a farmer and work on the farm day and night, cut timber, stuff like that. Didn't get a paycheck. That's just room and board. Daddy didn't have any education. Daddy didn't go to church. Daddy didn't read the Bible. He didn't know nothing. What chance is a man like that God of, of ever being saved? Or maybe it's some street kid. Maybe from a single parent home, so to speak, that all he does is run the streets. Never been to church. Never read the Bible. Doesn't know anything about it. What chance did they have of ever really really being saved. And whenever I read the story of Saul's salvation, I don't think I missed it. I don't see any sinner's prayer there. Years ago, I was gone preaching a revival and I had a preacher who I, I, I thought I could trust and he came and filled in for me that day and I got back from the Revival meeting, and they said, uh, I won't call her name, but uh, said uh, she got saved. I said, what? This is a lady, her and her husband owned a, a local business there. I had a great testimony. And uh, so I, I went over to find out and... Uh, said, well, you didn't have much to say about it. And I said, well, you know, you know, you need to get baptized scripturally now. Well, yeah, I guess so. Just kind of humdrum. 
So I waited Sunday, she didn't show up. Next Sunday, didn't show up. And I thought, what in the world is going on? I went back over there and I said, what's, what's going on? She said, Pastor said, I am so confused. She said, I felt that I, that, I, the, that I really wasn't saved and I needed to be saved. And he said, I, I came forward during the invitation and the preacher met me there. And she said, I want to receive Christ as my Savior this morning. She said, I knelt down and while I was praying, he stopped me and said, no. He said, you can't be saved that way. He said, the only way anybody can be saved is if they repeat those very words, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You've got to say those words and mean it. I'd never heard of such a preacher that was such an idiot in all of my life. I pray to God that he's the only one. Oh, by the way, a person as a part of receiving Christ could say those words and be saved. And that, that, that much is true. But I look here, I don't see any sinner's prayer whatsoever. I don't see any what they call praying through. And that, that's why certain denominations and even one branch of the Baptists think you've got to pray through in order to be saved. And that's why they'll... They'll, they'll come forward during the invitation, get on on these, and they'll, they'll start praying and praying and praying, and pretty soon somebody else will come up and slap them on the back and, and say, I'm going to pray, help you pray through. And they just pray and pray and pray until they think they've got it. I don't see anything like that. In fact, I don't even see any confession of sins here. Saul didn't say, oh dear God, I know I've, I've been so wrong, I'm so sorry, I've done this, I've done that. There's nothing about confession of his sins. He didn't have a statement of faith saying, no, this is what I believe. All he had was what? Faith. Lord, Lord, what will you have me to do? What do you want me to do? Lord, he has at that point surrendered himself entirely to whatever God wants for his life. I met the man who coined the KISS principle, Charles Tremendous Jones. I remember meeting him, keep it simple, stupid. That, 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 all, listen, that was, he, he was a big speaker, business speaker, motivational speaker. You know, I, I, I've got a better one than that. Keep it simple, saints. Keep it simple. Things are difficult enough without confusing people. Keep it simple. We are saved by grace through faith. That's it, period. And I know I've said this before, the day that I got saved, I was standing there gripping the back of the pew in front of me. I, God was dealing with me about 
that I needed to be saved. Nobody had to convince me I was a sinner. I knew that. I started down the aisle. I'll never forget a deacon by the name of Ted Mitchell met me down there and I just fell down on my knees. I don't know what he was saying. I just fell down on my knees. I don't remember what I said. But I know when I got saved. I got saved the minute, that very second I picked up that foot and headed that way because that's when I put my trust in Christ. Oh, the simplicity of salvation. And Lord, what would you have me to do? Verse 6, now here's the counsel that he received. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. This is the answer to Saul's prayer. The moment he's converted, now he's committed himself to doing God's will. Let me ask you, have you... Have you made that commitment? I know that I'm saved. Now, Lord, what what would you have me to do? I'm ready. I'm willing. God's not the author of confusion. He has a plan for each and every person. And success is finding and following God's will. That's all it is. And if God wants you to do something other than what you can find in the Bible, He will reveal it to you The only question is, are you truly willing to do what God wants? And then we begin to read, and I'm not going to read all of the verses on down, starting verse 7 all the way down through 19. Wish I had time to read all of these. You'd miss lunch if I said everything I wanted to. But here's the first thing I want to say. You know, people sometimes say, if you've got the Lord, you don't need nobody else. Now, there's a sense in which that, that's true. But it's nonsense in another way. God works through people. He used the testimony of Stephen without any doubt. And now here's a man who has received Christ and wanting to do the will of God And he's about to use someone else. The Lord tells him, gives him instructions. Now remember, Saul's in in Damascus. He's blind still yet now. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Saul might have said, uh, instead of saying, what would you have me to do? He said, Lord, what what about this? What about my eyes? I can't see. He wasn't even thinking about that, evidently. He just wants to know, what's God's will? What do you want me to do? And he's depending on others to lead him along. He's blind. Three days, it says, without any food, without any water. But in verse 10, we read about a man with the name of Ananias. And he's had a vision from the Lord himself. I can't help but wonder what might have happened if if, uh, Ananias hadn't responded. The Lord spoke in the vision to Ananias and notice his response. He says, Behold, I'm here, Lord. That's the attitude that Christians ought to have. 
So then on down through verse 16, we see the conversation between Ananias and the Lord. And he tells Ananias what to do and why. In verse 17, I want you to notice what he says beginning in verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way. Whoa, whoa. How'd you know about that? That Saul might have been thinking that. How'd you know? He says, even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest has sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forwith, arose, and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. And then Saul was with, then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. God always has something for every believer to do, some way to serve Him. And He uses others. And here we see this whole chain of different people. And He want to know what to do. And He tells Him down in verse 21 of chapter 22, that he was sent to the Gentiles. Wait a minute. But I'm a, I'm a Jew, remember? Lord, did you forget? I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I, you know, I, yes, I've trusted you as my Messiah, but salvation is of the Jews. You see, this is the last thing that any Jew would want to do, would be to go to the Gentiles. And you better believe those of us that have reaped the benefits of Christianity in the Western world better thank God for the Apostle Paul. Some have declared that the conversion of Paul was the greatest historical event since the day of Pentecost. And there's a good argument for that, by the way. What more important thing could happen that God would use this man to preach? And by the way, he immediately started preaching. He, he, he didn't wait. To, he just took off preaching. Didn't ask anybody's permission. Just took off preaching. And that led to conflict. In, actually in two different ways. Look in verse number 22 down through 25. With the Jews there at Damascus, they, they didn't like that. Who do, who do you think you are? That you're, you know, you're, you're going to go preach to the Gentiles? Christ is our Messiah, not theirs. And then lo and behold, when you get down to verse 26, you see... Conflict from a different source. The disciples took him by night 
and laid him down by the wall and put him in a basket. They're trying to get him out of town because there are those that are going to kill him. He's been questioned by the disciples themselves. Thank God there was somebody that stepped in and said, I'll vouch for him. You remember who that was? Yeah, Barnum said, God's, God's got this. I believe him, I trust him. They're thinking, hey, this guy's putting on a show. He's just trying to get information so he can persecute us all the more. You know, God never said the Christian life's going to be all fun and easy. Never said that. In fact, he said exactly the opposite. That if you're going to follow me, there are going to be troubles and trials and difficulties. We look at the whole story of Saul and the one thing that leaps out at me anyway is that God is in control. God is in control. He knows exactly what is going on. Even in the most seemingly hopeless cases, He's in control. I don't know what road you might be on today. I don't know... of things that might have happened in your life. But I know it's not an accident that you're here in this service. So when nobody made me come, nobody told me come, nobody invited me. I just came because I thought I'd drop in and see what this is all about. It wasn't an accident, I'm telling you. God is in control. And as hopeless, as hopeless as someone might seem, if a man like Saul could be saved. You could be saved. And you, you, might have, you might have come to church this morning because of some particular need in your life. But I can tell you, your greatest need above all else is that ye must be born again. The same one who saved this sinful, self-righteous Saul will save you today. You don't have to pray through. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to quote the sinner's prayer. All you need is faith in your heart, trusting that Jesus Christ is your Savior. And then the great thing about it is that God has a plan for you. God wants to use you. He will use you. I've often said, you know, even if, there, even if there were no heaven or hell, the Christian life would still be the best life anybody could live. But thank God, thank God there is a heaven to gain. And the Christian life is the best possible life that you could live. But you can't live that life until, first of all, you've been born again. Don't get, listen, don't give up on your family, your friends, those that seem to be hopeless. And I know what it's like to witness to family members and you just hope and pray that, that they've really been saved. Because some of them will tell you, oh yeah, I know that I'm saved. And yet there's absolutely no fruit, no evidence that they've really trusted Christ. 
Don't give up on them. You might meet up with some that will curse you and curse God above. Have no interest whatsoever. Don't give up on them. Some way, somehow, God, through using people, people just like you, can get the message to those that need it and it makes a difference. I'm glad we have a God like that that didn't give up on me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have blamed my family for disowning me. They never did, thank God, but they sure didn't like the life I was living. I wouldn't have blamed Bev if she'd have followed through with those divorce papers. I wouldn't. I couldn't blame her. I couldn't have blamed God if he'd have said, I've had it. I'm tired of messing with you. He never gave up. And as much as your mother and daddy or your Sunday school teacher and your pastors, as much as we want to see you saved, believe me, it pales in comparison to the desire of God's heart. Above everyone, He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, which simply means that you change your mind about your sinfulness and change your mind about Christ and you trust Him and He'll save you. And if you're here today and you've been saved, please understand, God uses people. He wants to use you. Somebody needs you. And God wants all of us to be involved in serving Him by serving others. And he said, if you do that, that great as your reward is in heaven. Let's bow as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, even if it was possible to speak with the tongues of angels, and even if we could speak as the most eloquent orator that ever lived upon the earth, we could not possibly improve upon those simple words of Jesus when He said, ye must be born again. We couldn't ever improve upon John 3.16. We couldn't ever improve upon the promises that You've given. And I pray today that if there is someone here that doesn't have the assurance of salvation, they don't know they go to heaven if they died, that this day, that they might put their faith in Christ, the risen Savior, and trust Him. Trust Him to save their soul. And may each of us do exactly as Saul did. Lord, what would You have me to do? May that be the desire of our heart as we leave here today to do what You would have us to do to do what would be pleasing in your sight. So we pray you'll meet these needs today so that you might be glorified in the work that's accomplished. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While we stand together and as we sing.